Good evening. It's great to be out tonight. I'm looking forward to the ice cream social after worship. Amen. It's going to be good to get to spend some more time with all of you. Right now, let's open up our Bibles together. Let's open up our Bibles to the book of Hosea. And we're going to be looking over in chapter 7 tonight. I'll give you a bit of review as we begin our time together. God spoke to the people of Israel. He made their sins clear through, both through the message and the life of Hosea the prophet. Remember, Hosea had to marry Gomer, who was a prostitute. And she went out and was not faithful to him at all. And yet he continued to take her back and be faithful to her. And that was a symbol, an illustration of God's relationship with His people. They had been so unfaithful to Him, and He had been so faithful to them. And so in the face of their sins and seeing and hearing everything that they'd done wrong and God's judgment on them, in chapter 6, the people responded to Him and they said, Come, let us return to the Lord, for He has torn us, but He will heal us. He's wounded us, but He will bandage us. He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day that we may live before Him. So let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. He, his going forth is as certain as the dawn, and He will come to us like the rain, like the spring rain watering the earth. What wonderful words they sound like. Words that seem very pleasant to hear and, and make me smile just thinking of that spring rain. But God says, no, those words are empty. You're not loyal. The actions didn't follow the words. God... God compared them to the dew that disappears early in the morning. And God continues to play on this situation in chapter 7. And the question that seems to be posed in chapter 7 is, what if I did decide to come and help you? Would you even let me do that? They've said all these things, but if God came to heal them, what would He find? What sort of things would they be doing after they uttered these prayers that seemed righteous and repentant? In Hosea chapter 7, verse 1, we read, When I would heal Israel, the iniquity of Ephraim is uncovered, and the, de the evil deeds of Samaria, for they deal falsely. The thief enters in, bandits raid outside, and they do not consider in their hearts that I remember all their wickedness. Now their deeds are all around them. They are before my face." And so it's almost as if they, and what we'll find tonight is they pray to God with this repentant prayer and seeking Him to come and save them, but then when it doesn't happen immediately, they just kind of throw up their hands and they say, well, guess we better find another way. God's not going to help. You ever known that person who prayed once and then said, well, I guess God's not going to do anything. I mean, I, I waited five whole minutes and I guess He's not going to help me out. I'll have to find my own way. And so they go off and they do any number of things. That's sort of what we find here. And it's a good thing to consider today. Are you loyal enough to God to let Him help you in His way, in His time? Or do you do kind of what Ephraim does? Wording a loyal sounding prayer then turning every way but God's way to solve your problems. Tonight we're going to study and remind ourselves to turn to God in the time of difficulty. And to turn to Him not just in prayer but in action with confidence that He will fulfill His promise to care for us. So let's look at the way that God describes the people in this chapter 7. 
If you look at verse 4, he says, uh, he says, they are all adulterers. They're all adulterers. And initially, it might seem that every person who's married is running around in their spouse. But remember, the context of Hosea, we're dealing with spiritually adulterous people. And God views them as His spiritual spouse. And so every one of them is an adulterer. All of them are running to idols. All of them are standing against God. And then in verses 4 through 8, he starts describing them with all sorts of things. He talks about an oven. He talks about something that's overheated and smoldering. Let's read that starting in verse 4. Listen for the heat and the hot and the oven. It says, they are all adulterers, like an oven heated by the baker, who ceases to stir up the fire from kneading of the dough until it's leavened. On the day of our king, the princes became sick with the heat of wine. He stretched out his hand with scoffers, for their hearts are like an oven as they approach their plotting. Their anger smolders all night. In the morning, it burns like a flaming fire. All of them are hot like an oven. And they consume their rulers. All their kings have fallen. None of them calls on me. Ephraim mixes himself with the nations. Ephraim has become a cake not turned. Strangers devour his strength. Yet he does not know it. And let's pause there. He talks about them being hot like ovens. Anger smoldering in their hearts. Have you ever felt that? You ever been so angry at something that's occurred in your life or to someone that you love that you just go to bed angry and the bed gets really hot? Can you tell that I've kind of felt that a time or two? <laughs> that is the most annoying thing. You want to go to sleep and get the day over with, but the bed heats up, you start sweating up a storm, and you just can't find sleep. They were smoldering. And then he talks about a cake. In verse 8, Ephraim has become a cake not turned. You think of a pancake. That's something that at our men's breakfast, I remember helping cook the pancakes. And those are really good as long as you flip them at the right time, right? But if you've got a really hot oven and you've got things that are smoldering and overheating and then you dump that batter on there and you leave it, you know what happens? You leave it on there long enough, it begins to smoke and burn on the bottom, and you take that off of there without flipping it, and you've got on one side black, caked on, smoldering, crusty grossness, and on the other side, you've got raw batter. You know what that is? It's trash. That's inedible. No one can eat that. Nobody wants to eat that. And that's what he says Ephraim is. They're like a cake not turned. Someone left them on there too long, they're burned on one side, raw on the other. No good. And in verse 9, he starts to describe their foolishness. Describes them, he says, strangers devour his strength, yet he does not know it. Gray hairs are also sprinkled on him, yet he does not know it. Though the pride of Israel testifies against him, yet they've not returned to the Lord their God, nor have they sought him, sought him for all this. So Ephraim has become like a silly dove without sense. And they call to Egypt, they go to Assyria, and when they go, I will spread my net over them. I'll bring them down like the birds of the sky. And this last part we'll read differently depending on translation. 
The one I'm reading from says, I will chastise them in accordance with the proclamation to their assembly. The point is that God's going to judge them for what they've done wrong. For all of the things that they're doing that are so foolish. You know, he talks about someone whose strength is devoured by strangers and he doesn't know it. Story about that. Everyone remember the first time you got a credit card? I do. I remember the first credit card I got. Wasn't much of a limit on it. But I thought, boy, this is the greatest thing in the world. I can go to the store and I can buy something and I don't even have to pay for it. It's the coolest thing in the world. Just slide that card and at the end of the month I get a bill and it's evidently much larger than I thought it would be. Don't know how all that stuff added up to that much, but I'll pay the minimum payment on it and that'll be just fine. That'll go away in a few months. It doesn't, does it? That stuff hangs around. They charge you interest. I'm not interested in interest. (laughs) But they do that, and before long, you're starting to pay and pay and pay and pay three, four, five, six, seven times what you initially owed. They're devouring your strength. And you don't even know it. That's the sort of thing that was happening to Ephraim. They were behaving foolishly. They were enslaving themselves to people to to receive help that really wasn't help at all. Strength is devoured. Calls them a silly dove, a bird with no common sense. And now the question is why? What are they doing? What is it that they are doing that is causing God to call them adulterers and and hot and burned like a pancake not turned over and and, and like a silly dove with no common sense and all of these things. What's causing God to talk about them that way? What is it that they're doing or not doing that they should be doing? I want to run back through this and point out a few key phrases that we read through. I underline them in my Bible with a colored pencil. That helps me. Helps them stick out to me. Because there's a pattern here. Notice back in verse 4. He says they are all adulterers. We already identified a spiritual sort of adultery. Going to others than God. The end of verse 7. Very last line of it. None of them calls on me. That's an important statement. None of them calls on me. Beginning of verse 8, Ephraim mixes himself with the nations or the peoples. Verse 9, strangers devour his strength. Are you seeing and hearing the adultery terminology that God's using? Strangers devour his strength. The middle of verse 10, second and third lines there. Yet they have not returned to the Lord their God. Nor have they sought Him for all this. The end of verse 11, they call to Egypt, they go to Assyria. But they won't call on the Lord. The end of verse 14, they turn away from Me. In verse 15, although I trained and strengthened their arms, yet they devise evil against Me. They turn, but not upward. They're like a deceitful bow. Their princes will fall by the sword because of the insolence of their tongue. This will be their derision in the land of Egypt. They refused 
to turn back to God. They spoke words that sounded nice. They said a good prayer and and said things that seemed repentant. But in actuality, the moment those words left their lips was the last time that they could have possibly meant them. Because immediately, they went out and went back to all the nations around them looking for the solutions to their problems, turning everywhere but to God who is up. They didn't believe that God was truly compassionate. They didn't believe or have confidence in His commitment and in His authority and power. They didn't understand it as they ought to have. And so they turned everywhere but to Him to find the answers. And this is where we turn our gaze perhaps toward our own selves and our own society. Because people are still doing that. I want to run through a few things that you often hear about today. Current events, current issues. Gun control, right? You hear about gun control, and I'm not going to give you a stance on it, but I just want you to think with me. We need to address the problem of murder. And so we're going to control the guns. Let's propose gun control, and that will stop the murder. Anybody remember a guy named Cain? I don't think that gun control is the answer to stopping murder. Do you? You look back all the way in Genesis. Sibling rivalry got out of control, and Cain went after his brother, and he killed him good. Or bad, I guess. He killed him. He didn't have a gun. He didn't need a gun. He went and he killed him because what was in his heart was wrong. Jesus answered that problem. And the same answer he gave to that problem is the same answer we need today. It's the only way it's going to get solved. Until we solve it God's way, there's always going to be murder everywhere. Jesus said in Matthew 5 verse 43, You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do you not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The answer is not to control the gun. To control the weapon. The answer is to find self-control with the one holding it. That's God's answer because no matter what age you live in, whether it's today with guns or you know, hundreds of years ago with swords and cannons, whether it's 20 years from now when they've got lasers and all sorts of strange things. There will always be a weapon and there will always be a person who needs self-control not to abuse it. There will always be a person whose heart needs to feel love and compassion rather than hatred. There are marriage problems, aren't there? Marriage problems all throughout the world, throughout society. And the answer that seems prevalent is, well, let's get divorced. Because obviously, we've fallen out of love. We had a pretty big 
knock down and drag out fight last night and I don't like sleeping on the couch. There's a bar and it gives me backache. And so let's get divorced. Jesus said, what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Matthew 19, 6. Divorce isn't the answer, but there is an answer that God gives for a marriage that's in trouble and having difficulty. It's about the example of Christ. That selfless and submissive example found in Ephesians 5, 21 through 33. That is the picture of the perfect marriage. And if the husband will focus on the husband's side of that and the wife will focus on the wife's side of that, things will start to turn around very quickly in that relationship. That's the solution. That's God's way to solve the problem. What about all kinds of perversion that we see that's put out in the... In the public eye through those boxes in our living rooms. All of that sort of stuff that's out there. And, and the answer of the world is, well, they're there and, and we really can't change them, so we ought to just tolerate it, you know. But God provides a better answer. An answer that doesn't lead to every detestable thing being acceptable in society, which is where we're headed. But instead, He provides a different answer. His answer is repentance, baptism, and a transformation beginning in the mind and progressing to the actions. Romans chapter 12. Let's read there. Romans 12 verses 1 and 2. We read this this morning in Bible class. He says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. God's answer is a transformation and renewing of the mind rather than a tolerance for sin. What about in the church? We don't have unity in the church. There's, uh, you know, there's congregations ten minutes away. Congregation just a couple blocks away, right? Just down the street here. You can drive down Mariposa Avenue and you find another church building, right? Walking distance away. Why aren't we together? And some folks would say, you know, you're right. I think we ought to be together. And we ought to, just, we ought to just have a joint service with them. Because boy, wouldn't it be uplifting if we could get together and all encourage each other at the same time. Wouldn't that be wonderful to get that many people together and, and it would be so uplifting and encouraging and I would leave feeling better than I ever have. And they say, well, we've got some things we do differently in our worship. We've got some things we teach differently than you. And we say, oh, that's all right. We need to be unified. What we really mean is we need a crowd to feel good about ourselves. A crowd. A crowd doesn't equal unity in the eyes of God. A crowd doesn't equal unity in the eyes of God. 
Just because every, a lot of people are in one place together, it doesn't mean that they're unified. Unity comes from, from adherence to His Word, from following His teaching and His instructions for not only how worship ought to be done, but about what's going to be taught from the pulpit, about what's going to be spoken of and instructed to those who want to be saved and all of these different things. And We don't get to change that so that we can make people feel good. We have to stay true to what He's given. And that unity makes. That's how we gain unity. Not through just becoming a, a big crowd. John 14, 15 says, If you love Me, you keep My commandments. And in John 17, 17, we're told that we would be sanctified by the truth, and that's God's Word. We're unified together as a people by the Word of God that draws us out of the world and into a place designed by God. You can look at any number of different problems that exist in your life or in the world around you, in your family. The reason that these problems aren't getting taken care of are because usually people are ignoring the problem at the heart of everything, and that's sin. They just aren't willing to deal with sin. Many times aren't even willing to address it that way. Not even willing to call it sin and say, I need to change. That's the heart of the problem and it's why the problems continue to persist. Sin wins when what I want is more important to me than what God calls right. James chapter 1 verse 14 talks about the origination of sin and I want you to remember that. James chapter 1 and about verse 14 he says each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. That's his own wants, his own desires, what he wants to have happen. And he's being carried away from God. And then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Don't think that you can have a problem-filled world and not have sin somewhere in the mix. Because the way God designed things, the way He's laid it out, if everyone is righteous, there are no problems anymore. And so where there's problems, where there's, where there's people who aren't agreeing with God's way, there's sin. And sin is what has to be taken care of. We have to continue in dedication to what God calls right if we want the problems that we face to be solved righteously. Our congregation can only continue to succeed if we begin adhering to God's righteous instructions. And we'll only succeed as a nation if we do the same thing. But you know, the nation is a, a big, big group of people to deal with, isn't it? And I don't have the authority or, or the influence to change all of them, but I can change me. And I can change the way that I'm treating people. Can make sure that I'm staying true to what God calls right and addressing problems 
as sin if they are. And teaching what's right to people who are in need of that. God has the answers to the real problem. And that's the problem of sin. Looking back in Hosea chapter 7, there was a statement that God made. Hosea 7 verse 7, in the very end of it, He said, none of them calls on me. There are a lot of people drifting in sin and not understanding how to get out of it. And if you're here tonight and you're wondering about that, how do I get out of sin and and into God's grace? How do I do that? The answer is, you have to do what they didn't. You have to call on God. In Romans chapter 10 verse 13, we're instructed to call on the name of the Lord to be saved. And in Acts chapter 22 verse 16, we're taught that that process involves being baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. Those two passages are keys to link together along with Hosea 7.7. I think that's a good one to throw in the mix. That calling on the name of the Lord so that you might be saved and then submitting to His way is the way to be saved. Don't be like the Israelites in Hosea who called out to God, seeming repentant, but then turned away from Him when they didn't see the immediate result they wanted. Stay with Him. Follow His way. And let Him cure your troubles. When we're brought out of the water of baptism, God has cleansed all our sins through the blood of His Son. That is the solution He has provided for our sins. And if we're, if we're willing to allow Him to change us, He will not only change us, but He'll cleanse us and He'll make us into something greater and better than we could ever be on our own. And so tonight, if you're ready to follow God's way, calling on His name through baptism, then we're here to receive you into the family of God. And if you're a child of God who's been refusing to turn upward for the solution that God's clearly provided, tonight is the time to stop living spiritually adulterous life and to turn to God and follow Him loyally once again. Tonight we offer the invitation to anyone who has a need. And so if you have a spiritual need tonight, please make it known by coming forward as we stand and sing.